following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. The Mythgard Academy and our final session discussing Morgoth's Ring. This is session number 28 and last. It is happening. <laughs> you know what that means, right? I am so convinced that we're ending tonight. Then I'm going to keep going until we're done. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. And my go- so the question is not whether we're going <laughs> whether we're going to finish tonight. The question is how close to on time am I going to end? That that is the real question. Stephen, exactly. It's the final session before the whole class goes to hell. That's exactly it. Inferno begins next week, next Wednesday. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the link is up on the Mythgard Academy page. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, Divorce says we knew that, right? As Arthur was just saying before class, uh, Inferno begins next week. Also, we start Dante. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, um, let's see. Yeah, also, don't forget, we've got uh, daylight savings in between now and then. So if those of you who are either outside of America or in those... Uh, funny parts of America that don't do daylight savings time, uh, such as Arizona, then, um, uh, you know, then uh, uh, don't forget there might be changes. Uh, But anyhow, okay, so just a couple words about the Dante class uh, before we begin. So I, you know, posted the schedule. The schedule is really simple. Um, Our our reading schedule is really simple. I'm going to do, for the first session, just read Canto 1. Just read Canto 1 for the first session. Um, I'm going to do, we're going to do some introduction. Going to be talking about the poem a little bit and how it works. And uh, so we're going to, we're going to take a little extra time uh, with the first Canto. After that, we're going to move through a little quicker. Um, The, my schedule, (laughs) don't laugh. (laughs) My schedule is three Cantos a week uh, for the rest of the time. So we're going to do Canto 1 the first time. There are 34 Cantos total uh, in the poem. We're going to do Canto 1 in week one, and then we're going to do, you know, two through four, and then five through seven, uh, all the way down until we get to Canto 34 at the end. Um, so, uh, so that's, uh, that's the plan. Um, uh, that's the plan. So, um, yeah, so James, so the, the War of the Jewels, we're going to be, uh, looking at, um, my hope is to begin that like the middle of March. Um, I've scheduled so despite my um, my ambitious schedule of three cantos a week uh, for the majority of the uh, of of Inferno, I have scheduled in a few extra sessions just on the odd chance that we run a little bit behind. Um, but even there, my hope is that we'll be done by about the end of February, uh, and then so it'll be, and then I'm going to be away the first week of March, so it'll be uh, it'll be uh, uh, probably like second week of March, March 10th is a guess at the first week, March 10th or 17th, maybe. Uh, but anyway, before, uh, before, um, before the end. Yeah, it's a little, it's cause they're with the holidays, uh, Jennifer, we only get three sessions in November and three sessions in December. Um, uh, so it's awkward, um, uh, with, uh, the, uh, uh, the holiday stuff. Um, so that's why we, it kind of stretches it out, uh, all the way through February basically. But, um, anyway, um, 
Yeah, that's, yeah, sorry. So I know for those of you who are going to be sitting out Dante and waiting for the War of the Jewels, it's going to be a while. It's going to be, it's going to be March uh, before we get back to it. Um, but, uh, but, but, but then we'll be back. We'll be back in March. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm only, I'm only scheduling 12, 14 classes, but it's still, it's still going to, you know, it's going to go, it's going to go until March, I'm sure. So, um, <laughs> right, yeah, Tarlonio. That's a good question. Uh, which will happen first? Uh, will we f- will we uh, uh, get through hell, or will we uh, complete the Council of Elrond? Um, I think the smart money is on hell, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah. Now, Michael, it is. I know that the fact that it's poetry does make that seem especially optimistic. Um, but we are doing poetry in translation. So there will be some times when I'm probably going to want to be glancing over at the Italian uh, as we go through. But I am no Italian scholar. So um, uh, it's there, there's there's limited help that I'm going to be able to be. Um, so there's a limited degree of the kind of close analysis of uh, poetry that I like to do that we're going to be doing on a line by line basis as we go through. So um, anyway, we'll um, uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, who knows? But that's the plan and we'll see what happens. All right. Let us jump first. Uh, let us jump right away then into uh, our discussion tonight. The dominant theme of this final session is going to be orcs as Tolkien came back later on to revisit the orc question um, on several occasions, and we can see him kind of dealing with it and advancing his ideas forward a little bit, sort of forward, sort of back. Uh, I've kind of semi-jokingly called this a tactical retreat from the orc question, as he never actually... um, It honestly sounds to me like he's kind of ducking the orc question uh, with what sounds to me almost like um, deliberateness, you know, uh, that it's like a deliberate ducking, uh, of the, in ways in which I haven't seen him deliberately ducking these kinds of, uh, sort of theological and philosophical implications, you know, in so much of the rest of the stuff that we've been looking at. Um, but we'll get there. I'll show you what I mean by that. But anyway, lots of orc issues tonight. Uh, and we are, uh, and we are ready to go. By the way, one last uh, comment that I want to make, and of course, yeah, uh, David, I figure I will share the slide, and while because while I'm doing that, I want to actually comment on it. Um, one thing that I was noticing after our discussion last week, um, if you look closely, actually, hang on a second, let me zoom in a little bit for you. Let me change this. I'm not trying not to give um, the people in Twitch uh, seizures. Okay, there we go. Uh, so if you look closely at the arm of Morgoth in this image, this is, of course, Morgoth and Hurin uh, by uh, uh, the painting by Ted Naismith. Um, the left forearm that we can see from the elbow to the wrist of Morgoth as he's pointing down, of course, he's got like sinisterly uh, clawed nails and things like that. Um, but... Um, the thing that always really kind of struck me about this, if it weren't for the arm, the figure, the crown, the chainmail that you can see down there by the left hip, uh, the breadth of the shoulders, especially beneath the cloak, he looks huge. He looks intimidating. You know, he looks impressive. That arm, not so much, right? That arm doesn't look, it looks veiny. It looks, it looks withered. That looks like the arm of... 
like a, I don't know, like a 70 year old man who used to be like really fit. So like it's got still got like muscle, like a lot of like sort of, uh, you know, uh, sinewy muscle. Um, but but, uh, you know, it's all kind of like, you know, veiny and sinewy. It, it looks, uh, you know, it doesn't it is not exactly an intimidating arm. Um, and I just I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting in the light of what we've been reading about Melkor. He should be actually kind of, you know, and, and it just kind of struck me. Um, that's actually one thing I, I always kind of disliked about this. Not Well, that's a little strong, but it was one flaw that I always felt in this image is that I felt like his arm should look more commanding, should look more powerful. He's making this powerful gesture with his left arm in that image. Um, and yet again, the actual flesh of the arm itself looks kind of wussy, right? Looks looks kind of uh, shriveled in some ways. But of course, now uh, having read uh, you know, having reviewed more, you know, as we are through our discussions last week, uh, those later sections, I'm not sure that's actually not perfect. In fact, um, you know, the large frame, but kind of, you know, to show his body itself kind of, uh, kind of, kind of shrunken in, right? You know, he should be kind of, I think, to kind of capture what Tolkien was describing about the Morgoth, right? Um, he should be kind of, uh, you know, hollow cheeked and, and, um, uh, you know, like the, the the sort of shriveled wreck of a once powerful person actually is kind of uh, that that kind of works for me actually. Um, so anyway, I, I just wanted to point out that I have gained a new appreciation for uh, Ted Nath Smith's depiction of Morgoth's left elbow. So let's move on uh, to our next slide. Um, all right. The last intervention with physical force by the Valar ended in the breaking of Thangorodrim, sorry, ending in the breaking of Thangorodrim, may then be viewed as not in fact reluctant or even unduly delayed, but timed with precision. Notice how, is there anything that Tolkien has ever waffled on <laughs> more than the question of like the degree to like what mistakes did the Valar make and what degree, you know, and the degree to which they are mistakes? This is precisely the thing that he just said in a passage we looked at last week that they were, they, they, or maybe the week before, they had failed in Estelle. Right? They should have attacked knowing that Eru wasn't going to enable them to destroy the children or prevent the children from coming uh, through the destruction of the land. They should have had enough Estel um, to... Uh, what on earth was that? Sorry, just got a noisy notification. Um, uh, anyway, uh, they should have... Um, they should have had enough Estel uh, to uh, to know that they should have gone ahead and, and done that. So it was a failing. It was a failing of them to do that. Um, and we saw in the conversation between Manwe and uh, Eru the uh, kind of very gentle chiding that Eru does about uh, their choice to bring the Eldar over, you know, uh, to Valinor. That uh, you know, it's kind of a little late in the day for them to worry about not tampering with them. Um, you know, but again, and that, of course, in turn was a reversal of the whole, um, you know, speaks with the tongue of Melkor condemnation that we got earlier on. Anyway, point is, he seems to be vacillating on this point just a little bit. And now, instead of saying that this, the delay of the attack was a failure of Estelle on the part of the Valor, now he's saying it's not even, it's, it's, they weren't reluctant. And it wasn't actually even delayed. It was timed with precision. The intervention came before the annihilation of the Eldar and the Adain. 
Morgoth, though locally triumphant, had neglected most of Middle-earth during the war, and by it he had in fact been weakened. In power and prestige, he had lost and failed to recover one of the Silmarils, and above all, in mind... Oh wait, hang on a second, I'm sorry. I'm mistaking my context. This is a mistake I make when I jump around from one passage to the next. It's not, of course, the inter- the breaking of thing of 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 uh, I was thinking of Atumno, which is what the failure of Estelle was. This is the this is the War of Wrath. My apologies. I'm, I'm slipping my passages that I'm talking about here. Um, no, he's talking about the War of Wrath. So the the quest, but 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 it is about the question of the Valar and the, the whether how. On top of things, the Valar are, right? What he's addressing is the question of, were the Valar neglectful, right? Were the Valar just, like, oblivious? Because, again, there there were times when he was suggesting that. Remember, even the 1950s words, I mean, if you can cast your memory back this far, or if you've reread it recently, what, um, what almost says to Tuor in the later Tuor, um, you know, Tuor and the coming to Gondolin, which was is so the tragically unfinished one um i there even there in the 1950s Oma was suggesting that the valar are not really paying attention and they really don't want it but he can but omo can deliver them right he can he can he can he can make it happen um the idea that they're reluctant the idea that they're even you know the 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 concern, the, the suspicion that they're not even really they're detached. They're not even paying attention anymore. Remember, Sar- Sauron himself was banking on that. Um, but anyway, um, so so he says, no, no, no. It's not that they were neglectful. It's not that they weren't paying attention. Um, they weren't reluctant. They didn't delay. They timed it exactly right. So why is the War of Wrath timed exactly right? Let me read it again. The intervention, that is the War of Wrath, came before the annihilation of the Eldar and the Adain. <laughs> okay, so on the one hand, that's faint praise, right? Um, it's like, well, you have to admit, he had not, Morgoth had not yet succeeded in annihilating the Eldar and the Adain, so that counts as a win. Morgoth, though locally triumphant, had neglected most of Middle-earth during the war, and by it, he had in fact been weakened by the war. He had been weakened. In power and prestige, he had lost and failed to recover one of the Silmarils, and above all, in mind. He had become absorbed in kingship, and though a tyrant of ogre size and monstrous power, this was a vast fall even from his former wickedness of hate and his terrible nihilism. He had fallen to like being a tyrant king with conquered slaves and vast obedient armies. So... The war in Beleriand. So, the moral of the story is, the moral of the story is, right, um, the good guys actually won in the first stage, right? I mean, it looked bad, admittedly, right? He was locally triumphant. It's true that Morgoth kept, like, winning the war, right? Kept winning the battles and everything, but that's not what matters most, right? In fact... This was victory for the good guys as a whole, right? Because in order to conquer the elves of Beleriand, the elves and the Eldar and the Adain of Beleriand, Morgoth had to uh, lessen himself, right? He had to, uh, he had been weakened, he had to weaken himself in power and prestige and in mind. He was no, no longer, not only was he no longer capable 
of operating like the cosmic force that he was at the beginning, he didn't even want to, right? He had fallen to the point where, you know, he couldn't even be bothered to, like, destroy all life and order wherever he found it anymore. Now he just wants to rule Beleriand. Now he, he's, he, he was enjoying being a tyrant king with conquered slaves. Um, he was just, he had fallen to being merely a warlord, truly a locally powerful warlord, admittedly. But he was no longer Melkor at all, right? He was no longer the great enemy anymore. He had dwindled to becoming a mere local enemy and thus defeatable. So it was all a setup. So the, the Valar were playing the long game on Melkor here as he was continuing to expend himself and expend himself and to diminish and diminish his view. Yes, he had achieved victory in Beleriand, right? He had won all the battles. Um, you know, uh, most of the Elvish kingdoms were destroyed. Uh, most of the Adain were dead. But, but, he was losing as a consequence of this, right? That is exactly what made him lose. This is a remarkable argument. I never remember seeing anything like this before. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of anything in this, in like any of the Silmarillion tradition, which is pointed in this kind of direction at all. And I, I, I can't think of that. This is, seems to me a unique new idea um, uh, of, uh, of of Tolkien's as a way to kind of categorize this. Um, yeah, so David Attlee says, so the moral of the story is Morgoth could not hope to achieve victory by strength of arms. No, he couldn't. I mean, like, yeah, he could, right? He could, David, see, the thing is he could triumph on the field for a day, right? But against the power that was rising against him, there was no victory. So, you know, it's all good. It's it's all good. I think, I think that's how it works. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, n yeah, now, Chris, I, I, I don't disagree with you that um, this is, you know, Chris says this is a rather odd point of view for a veteran of World War I, um, you know, that the cost of the near destruction of a good portion of the children of Eru was justified by the weakening of, by the weakening of Melkor. Um, I hear that. I hear that. I mean, like, this is... Uh, Chris, it is the kind of, like this, this, if you just took this paragraph, you know, with, of course, the appropriate explanations you'd have to give in order to make it make sense to somebody who hadn't read the Silmarillion, but um, if you just took this paragraph, right, and gave it to somebody who didn't know anything about Tolkien or, you know, what, The Lord of the Rings or whatever, and um, I could imagine a person who read this being like, wow, whoever wrote this is totally out of touch with war and what war is really like, right? This guy, the guy who wrote this, has really no idea. Um, I mean, is like living in some kind of fantasy world in which he has really no familiarity with the actual human cost of war to be able to talk like, to talk so callously about it like that. Um, I mean, Chris, I'm I'm saying I could imagine somebody having that reaction to this passage. I could easily imagine somebody having that reaction. So that is to say, you're right. Chris, you're right. It is an interesting and an odd uh, kind of uh, thing for somebody who uh, fought in the trenches in World War One and lost almost all of his childhood friends uh, uh, in the war. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, 
Uh, I mean, no, there's no question. Like, um, this is. Um, uh, uh, this is written. What uh, dating these Christopher's not very precise in a lot of these passages, but we're talking somewhere between 1960 and 1965, probably for these somewhere in the vague area of 1960 uh, is when uh, I mean, most of these things are. Um, so, I mean, yes, you know, it's it's been what more than 40 years uh, since World War One. So it's, you know, not saying that you forget that, but it's certainly not. You know, would he have written this exactly in this way in 1920? I doubt it, right? I doubt it. I'm, I'm sure at the very least this would have been a much easier paragraph to write from the vantage point of 40 years difference. And, uh, uh, Stephen, as you say, um, uh, World War II had also happened, and uh, World War II was kind of a different paradigm in some ways. Um, uh, but anyway, I... I, I I don't think, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, in the end, I don't think that it is actually callous. I mean, I think that, I don't think that his, you know, sort of empathy for the suffering of the Eldar and the Adine and the situation is actually decreased. You know, I, I don't think that the, the pathos of these stories in his mind is any less than it was before. I think that those things are all still there. But what I do think that he's doing here is taking the really wide-angle view of the situation, right? From the Valar, uh, from the point of view of the Valar, remember, remember the problem that he had kind of set for himself. And we didn't talk, I didn't spend all that much time on this passage, but remember the passage we looked at last time when it contrasted how difficult Manway's job was compared to Gandalf's job. Remember that? Gandalf, I mean, Sauron was all localized and stuff. Right. I mean, yeah, it was a it was a, you know, it was a challenge. Right. Um, but still, all he had to do was defeat Sauron and then no problem. And right. And Sauron had all of his uh, uh, had all of his power in, you know, I mean, with, with the ring, all you had to do is destroy the ring. I mean, there was a there was a cheat code for defeating Sauron for crying out loud. Right. And but even apart from the fact that Sauron had a cheat code or rather, I guess, Gandalf had a cheat code for destroying Sauron. Uh, apart from that. What it meant to destroy again, he was localized, right? He was just he was just, he was separate. Whereas Melkor and Melkor's influence was permeated the entirety of the physical matter of Arda. So how could Manway possibly defeat Melkor without destroying Arda, right? Without dismantling Arda atom by atom and reconstructing it. Um, that was the challenge that Tolkien's, you know, so with his his kind of new conceptions of Melkor, or rather his more full thinking through of the philosophical implications of the concept of the marring of Arda. Remember, we've been talking about the marring of Arda as, you know, the role of Melkor, of the Satan figure, right, being so instrumental, so directly instrumental in the tainting and the... Um, uh, you know the, the the sort of troubling of all the physical world. That's a that, that he's that's one of the ways in which it differs from the Satan legend from the from from the the Judeo Christian tradition of the fall of man and stuff. Um, having 
worked through the implications of that. If that is true, if Melkor is responsible for marring all of physical matter, right, uh, in the in 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 Ea, then he's huge, right? He's absolutely huge, and so therefore, there's only one way he's going to get thrown on his face, right? There's only one way in which he's going to be finally, ultimately imprisoned and then booted, right, uh, from from Ea, and that is if he declines and he's got to put him. So, from this perspective. Chris, now I'm not saying, Chris, that what, what I'm saying right now isn't going to sound like a justification, or it's not going to work, I think, as a justification uh, against the argument that you were against the point that you were making. But it is more like, as Josiah was saying earlier, this is a very, um, uh, this is a very Boethian kind of argument. Boethius would be all over this argument, right? Um, uh, what's the worst thing that you can do? to a bad guy? What's the worst thing you can do to somebody, to an evildoer? Let him continue to do evil, right? And then he's going to carry on harming himself. That is the absolute worst thing you can do to an evildoer, um, is not, is let them escape justice. If they, I mean, that's, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to them, right? Lady philosophy is very clear on this. And so, yeah, there is, I I think, lady philosophy would approve of this view of things that the Valar have. But again, if we think back to Manway's puzzle, how does he defeat him? How does he contain him? How does he preserve any of Arda under these circumstances? He can't dismantle it. He doesn't have the power to just, like, you know, clean it, just to heal it uh, unilaterally. So what can he do? He can defeat Morgoth, but he can only defeat Morgoth when Morgoth goes in this direction. So what do they do? They let the war happen. Now, the war was chosen um, by the Adain, or sorry, by the Eldar and by the Adain. The Adain came over and they could have left. Um, uh, You know, it's not exactly like the Valar, even in this argument, are using the, you know, the Eldar as cannon fodder uh, or something like that. Um, But... um, uh, but yeah, I mean, Nancy, is there a lot of collateral damage with that plan? Yes, but though Nancy, a great deal less collateral damage than there is with the less dismantle AI and start over again plan, right? Um, you know, let's destroy everything uh, and uh, and rebuild it again from scratch. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, jo- but Josiah, exactly. Oft evil will shall evil mar, right? That many times is seen. And this is one of them, right? Exactly. It does fit that, you know, the spirit of sayings like that uh, from the Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I don't want to get I don't want to get into a huge Boethius digression. We're never going to get anywhere tonight. Well, no, we will. We'll just be here until three o'clock in the morning, uh, which, by the way, I work until 6, 7 a.m. every day, so I'm ready. Uh, my day's just beginning. Uh, but I'm not going to do that to you guys. Anyway, but Cecilia says, you know, so let a serial killer keep on killing. No, no, no. It's, the point isn't that that's a good idea. The point is that that's the worst thing you could do to them. 
Um, it's not saying that it's a good, no, no, like actually bringing them to justice is good. It's better for everybody, including them. Um, no, no, it, it's just, it, that is the, that is Boethius's answer to the abstract question. What is the worst thing that you could do to an evildoer? And the answer is let them continue doing evil, um, not bring them to justice because bringing them to justice is, 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 is going to be, is going to be doing them good. Um, it's not an argument against bringing them to justice at all. It's just, it's just talking about, um, you know, what is, because you know, that anyway, I, I, I won't get too far down the, the Boethius rabbit hole there, but that's just to explain what I was talking about there. Um, um, yes, exactly. Worst in the sense of allowing them to destroy themselves. Exactly, Chris. It is. It's the worst for their sakes. It's the worst thing that you could. It's the worst thing you could do to them for their sakes. Um, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. More on Morgoth, and then we'll get to orcs. This is really interesting, isn't it? Remember the context. Remember the context. There is no door of night anymore, right? We don't have a door of night that you can't open the gates of night and push him through anymore into outer darkness. We're in, you know, we're in a Copernican system now, right? So you're not just going to like blast him off into space. That's not going to work, right? So what do you do? Um, How do you handle Morgoth? Right. When you do capture him at the end of the War of Wrath, when there's no gate of night anymore to push him through because we've re- resolved all that ridiculous astronomical mythology. The war was successful and ruin was limited to the small, if beautiful, region of Beleriand. Morgoth was then actually made captive in physical form and in that form taken as a mere criminal to Amon and delivered to Namo Mandos as judge and executioner. He was judged and eventually taken out of the blessed realm and executed, that is, killed like one of the incarnates. I really, he doesn't say how. Did they decapitate Melkor? Is that the idea? Was he hanged? I want to know. I want to picture this, Tolkien. Come on. Anyway, it was then made plain though it must have been understood beforehand by Manwe and Namo, that though he had disseminated his power, his evil and possessive and rebellious will, far and wide into the matter of Arda, he had lost direct control of this, and all that he, as a surviving remnant of integral being, retained as himself and under control was the terribly shrunken and reduced spirit that inhabited his self-imposed but now beloved body. When that body was destroyed... He was weak and utterly houseless, and for that time at a loss and unanchored, as it were. We read that he was then thrust out into the void. That should mean that he was put outside time and space, outside Ea altogether. But if that were so, this would imply a direct intervention of Eru, with or without supplication of the Valar. It may, however, refer inaccurately to the extrusion or flight of his spirit from Arda. Notice how at the end there he's you know he talks about that the 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 you know the old myth of how he was thrust out into the void, um, except now he's got like sort of a qualification there right. So then Melkor's spirit was thrust out into the void. Footnote, but like not really and stuff 
right? Not like literally. It wasn't like a literal gate that opened the doors and outside is outer darkness. It's the boundary of the universe and outside is outer darkness in the void. And you literally, you know, shove him through, um, you know, like a hobbit throwing their dirty dishes out of an upstairs window. And then uh, off he goes and you shut the gates of night. Like It's not like that anymore. Right. So obviously he can't be thrust into the void in a literal sense. Uh, And in fact, he says it can't even really like the only the only meaning that the phrase um, thrust into the void could possibly have is to say that he's put outside entirely of time and space. In other words, that he was banished from Ea itself. But then, of course, he points out the Valor don't have the power to banish anybody from Ea. Only uh, Iluvatar does. And did he actually? Well, not really sure. So probably what the mythological idea of Melkor's spirit being thrust out into the void actually means is that he was either kicked out or fled from Arda itself. Um, uh, so, yeah, Devorah, in that sense, he has a soul that goes somewhere, except remember, he doesn't have a Fea Roa situation, right? He isn't composed of a Fea and a Roa joined together. He is own, he is a spiritual being, but his being was like adhering to his, um, uh, to his body, right? He had made a body for himself and he was stuck in that body. Um, he was only, only like the spirit that was contained within that shrunken body was, was, um, well, shrunken spirit contained within that body, um, still ogreish body, so still like big, um, as Tarlonial says, ogre-sized is point is pretty big compared to humans or hobbits, but pretty small compared to a god. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so that's the body that um, he was kind of was in this sort of self-imposed banishment within this body, um, and yet he was clinging to it, right? He had come to love his body uh, because he had become rooted in this idea of being a you know, a local tyrant with his local body. Um, and they executed it for him, right? They killed his body. And, uh, uh, and then when they killed his body, his spirit left. And so we have his spirit fleeing kind of like Sauron's spirit after the destruction of the ring, right? This weak and utterly houseless spirit that is unanchored from anything, right? Kind of wandering about. And then the answer to the question, what happened then to that spirit? It was banished from Arda. Right. But its influence is still felt. Why is its influence still felt? Why is Arda? Why did Arda not become unmarred at that point? Because his power, his evil and possessive and rebellious will had all had been distributed throughout all of Arda, especially the physical world of Arda. And he couldn't take it back. It it wasn't even under his control anymore. Um, it had left him and and was gone and is now permanently soaked into uh, all of the rest of Arda there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, right, so Brian, that would explain why Morgoth... Um, so Brian is asking why if uh, if Sauron was able to recover from the destruction of his body at the fall of Numenor, why was Morgoth not able to recover from his execution here? But the answer is the level of dispersion, right? Sauron, 
as Tolkien says elsewhere, or maybe we haven't gotten to that, pa- maybe we'll get to that passage in a minute. Um, Saur- like originally, at the beginning of their beings, Morgoth is like orders and orders of magnitude greater. He's like a million times more powerful than Sauron. And yet, by the end, Sauron is probably more powerful because he had not dispersed himself in the same way. He still had all of his power. He does go down that road, right? Especially with the ring. But, um, but he doesn't disperse himself in that same way. So he's able to recover from the Numenor situation, right? That is from the death of his body. At Num- but it takes him longer to recover from the death of his body um, and the removal of his ring, right? Uh, that is by Isildur uh, at the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, okay. Um yeah, Arthur, it is kind of intriguing that he's taken out of the Blessed Realm prior to execution. It's almost like, um, uh, you know, like being, uh, like, like being buried at the crossroads. You know, like they, 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 they took him out of consecrated ground um, and executed him, you know, in a special, duly appointed, non-consecrated place so that his the death of Morgoth, you know, the execution of Morgoth wouldn't, wouldn't sully the ground, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Amman. We don't have authority for that kind of, the kind of language I'm using right there. I'm saying it sounds almost like that. Um, well, that's what it makes me think. I might be wrong and it might not be like that, but that's what it makes me think. Um, him being taken out of the blessed realm prior to being, um, executed. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Josiah says, like how Frodo did not want Saruman slain in the Shire. Also, Josiah, kind of like Saruman's uh, threat to the hobbits, right? If my blood stains the Shire, it shall wither and never again be whole. That's not true, as Frodo says, and it, it, presumably that would not also be true of Morgoth in Amon. Um, and yet, nevertheless, Frodo does not want him killed, and certainly doesn't want him killed there. Um yeah, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So I still want to know. What do you guys think? How do you think he was killed? Hanging? Beheading? With an axe? Or a sword? I doubt it's lethal injection. Uh, burning? Strangling? Possibly, right? Have Tolkis throttle him? <laughs> Thus, fulfilling a long-standing fantasy, perhaps, of Tolkis. Um, I, 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 uh, yeah, Arthur says they didn't throw him into a chasm. Nobody ever dies from that. <laughs> yeah, only in Star Wars, not in, not in, not in, not in Tolkien, not in Tolkien. Okay, uh, let's see. So Kit and Mark are both in the de- beheaded with a sword um, uh, uh, camp. Yeah, fire would be poetic, Michael. I do agree with that. Brian says Turin has to be involved somehow, right? Yeah, they have to get Turin out of retirement in order to in order to do that. Um, right, drowning. Yes, yes. Uh, Carrie and Michael are both suggesting uh, are both suggesting drowning. Um, Marianne thinks that uh, Tolkis's laughter will do him in. Uh, very possibly. Very possibly. Um, uh, okay. Okay. 
Um, buried alive? Yikes. I don't know. I'm not sure about that one. I mean, the the example that we get of that is, is our Pharazon, right? In the Numenorians. But that's like a, an entombment. That's like a preservation. Like they're, they're, um, they're coming back from that, we're told. But um, yeah. Um, anyway, I don't know. Um, but um, uh, <laughs> anyhow, I, I just, I, inquiring minds want to know. You know, I, I think uh, uh, sword decapitation with the sword. I could, I could, I could see that. Who would do it? Aonway? Probably. No, wait. No, Namo does it. He is judge and executioner. Yeah, Mandos. Mandos executes him. Okay, now hang on. That informs the question, doesn't it? They don't let Tolkas do it. It's Mandos himself who executes him. How would Mandos do it? I don't know. <laughs> Brian says Mandos with the poker in the library. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yana says, knowing Mandos, he talked him to death with vague and useless allusions to the future. Possibly. Uh, possibly. Maybe, you know, sealed him in an airtight room and let him suffocate. I don't know. Um, well, that's what I'm thinking, James. Like, does, he, does Mandos even have a sword? I, I don't. I don't remember him ever being associated with a weapon. So now trying to picture, um, uh, trying to picture Mandos as the actual executioner makes this even harder to imagine. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Sharon, it does sound likely that they would probably have to like decapitate him and then burn his body afterwards. Right. I mean, like it's uh, it's not like, an, you know, it's not like a normal. I can't imagine that this body that Morgoth is stuck in has exactly normal physiology. Right. So um, I. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I guess we'll always just have to be curious. All right. Melkor was not Sauron. We speak of him being weakened, shrunken, reduced, but this is in comparison with the great Valar. He had been a being of immense potency and life. The elves certainly held and taught that Fear or spirits may grow of their own life, independently of the body, even as they may be hurt and healed, be diminished and renewed. The dark spirit of Melkor's remainder might be expected, therefore, eventually, after long ages, to increase again, even as some held, to draw back into itself some of its formerly dissipated power. It would do this, even if Sauron could not, because of its relative greatness. Okay, so this, notice one of the things that it's, like, it's like Sauron would never take shape again after the destruction of the ring, right? So is that the situation with Melkor? And the answer is not necessarily, right? He could get better. Um, especially since, unlike Sauron, again, like the with Manway's problem, unlike Sauron, Melkor's ring isn't destroyed, right? Melkor's ring 
namely Arda, is still around. Um, and so, therefore, he could potentially um, draw back into itself some of its formerly dissipated power. It would do this even if Sauron could not, because of its relative greatness. I mean, he was huge from the start. It did not repent or turn finally away from its obsession, but retained still relics of wisdom, so that it could still seek its object indirectly, not merely blindly. It would rest, seek to heal itself, distract itself by other thoughts and desires and devices, but all imply sorry, but all simply to recover enough strength to return to the attack on the Valar and to its old obsession. As it grew again, it would become, as it were, a dark shadow, brooding on the confines of Arda and yearning towards it. Okay, so again, Mel- this is another explanation for why Melkor, though he is out of commission, is not gone away, right? And is still he does still lurk on the con- on the you know on the on the on the borders of the confines of Arda, yearning towards Arda, growing and growing more strong. Um, so this is why I think. We don't need to get Turin out of retirement. Um, Turin can st- he, his 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 his, t- his day will still come uh, because Melkor probably still can recover sufficiently to to come in for one last hurrah uh, at the Dagor Dagoroth, right? Which Tolkien doesn't talk about, but uh, which presumably is still is still there. Um, yeah. Um, Devora, you're right. It is very interesting that Melkor is it throughout this passage. Now, the it, the antecedent of the it, uh, in especially the second half of this passage, is the dark spirit of Melkor's remainder, right? So the spirit. Um, but but yeah, I, I, the depersonalization of that is very real and I think very deliberate, right? It is. It's not Melkor. It's just the remainder. Of Melkor, it's the butt end of Melkor that's still out there. Um, it's not him, uh, but it's uh, so it's it's not him. It's it, um, but it is growing. It is seeking to heal itself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, huh. David says maybe this is the mechanism for Arda healed. Melkor extracts his own taint from Arda in order to reform himself, and his defeat can then be final uh, and the taint cleared. Maybe. Maybe. That's interesting. Okay, let's keep going. All right, now to the orc problem. Um, to the orc problem. Okay, here's the, the beginning of a little, the little essay he wrote on orcs. Well, a one of the little essays he wrote on orcs. Orcs. Their nature and origins require some thought. They are not easy to work into the theory and system. And that, my friends, is the nomination for Understatement of the Day by J.R.R. Tolkien. One. As the case of Aule and the Dwarves shows, only Eru could make creatures with independent wills and with reasoning powers. But orcs seem to have both. They can try to cheat Morgoth, slash Sauron, rebel against him, or criticize him. Okay. So, the orcs seem to have both independent wills and reasoning powers. And only Eru could make creatures with independent wills and reasoning powers. Two. Therefore, they must be corruptions of something pre-existing. Three. But men had not yet appeared when the orcs already existed. 
Aule constructed the dwarves out of his memory of the music, but Eru would not sanction the work of Melkor so as to allow the independence of the orcs. That is, there's not going to be no parallel moment, right, where Melkor creates the orcs and wishes to give them independent life, and Eru is like, Melkor, what are you doing? And he's like, making orcs, and, you know, and, and, uh, and then, like, repents, and Iluvatar's like, oh, go on then, right? You know, like he does to Aule. Like, that's not going to happen. So the orcs are not going to be accepted as the stepchildren of Iluvatar. He is not going to grant them independent will like he did to the dwarves, clearly. Not unless orcs were ultimately remediable or could be amended and saved. Yes, indeed, that is the corollary of the independent will question. If they do have free will, like children of Iluvatar do, then in theory they would they are savable. They could amend, they could repent. And he goes on. It also seems clear, see Finrod and Andreth, that although Melkor could utterly corrupt and ruin individuals, it is not possible to contemplate his absolute perversion of a whole people or group of peoples and his making that state heritable. Added later, this latter must, if a fact, be an act of Eru. Only Eru can make, um, could make an absolute, like an, uh, th- that kind of an absolute alteration of... Pe- it, is, it, it is imaginable, that is, to say that Melkor could have completely corrupted, like, a generation of children, right? Children, you know, that he had so worked upon them that they were thoroughly corrupted. Um, But that their kids would come out corrupted, would be corrupted, equally corrupted as their parents from birth, he doesn't have the power to do that. Only Eru can do that, because remember, Eru is the source of the Thea, Right? The Fae's come straight from Eru. So he's not going to be like, oh, okay, they came from Orkish parents, so I'm going to give them a, a wicked and evil Orkish Fea, right? That's not what Eru is going to do at all. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Josiah said, thinking about the independent wills and the rebelling against and criticizing uh, Morgoth or Sauron, Josiah says, there's Shagrat and Gorbag throwing a wrench into everything as usual. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, all right. Um, right, exactly, Stephen. It, would, like, it is possible to imagine a corruption as a result of nurture happening. But in order for that uh, corruption to be passed down by nature to all future generations of orcs, that is not, can't be in Melkor's power, he says. In that case, elves as a source are very unlikely. So the arguments... So here he lays out pretty clearly the, 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 the insuperable philosophical problems, right? On the one hand... Orcs can only have independent will and reasoning powers if they are children of Iluvatar, because only the children of Iluvatar have that, and Morgoth can't fake it. He can't. So that's one side of the problem. 
But the other side of the problem is that logically, again, if they are corrupted children of Iluvatar, they cannot be permanently corrupted. They cannot pass on their corruption to their children and bear only evil children uh, for all time. That's not possible. And even the evil parents, like orcs would have to have the power to repent. They would ha- they could be amended. And that is irreconcilable with the Lord of the Rings. You can't have Legolas and Gimli playing their fun little orc slaying game in a world in which orcs can repent, in which orcs have free will. Remember that people have mercy on the humans all the time, not just like the Dunlendings after the Battle of Helm's Deep, but the, uh, you know, the Easterlings and, and, and Southrons after the Battle of the Black Gate, too. Um, the men are given terms. The orcs are all slain out of hand. Anywhere the orcs are found, they are hunted down and killed. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, like vermin from, you know, before an exterminator, right? That's the attitude to orcs. And that attitude, it works when orcs are constructs. If orcs are not people, if they're not people, if they don't have free will, then you can treat them like that. Um, then they're just like, you know, robots trained to kill. Right. Robots programmed to hurt people. And so if there were like a whole bunch of free range robots just trained to torture and kill people whenever they found them, you know, I think you could probably be excused from hunting them down and destroying them wherever you found them uh, and not trying to negotiate with them and not, you know, trying to set them up with a bit of land on themselves to see if they can make a new lives for themselves. Um, But um, anyway, so. Um, that's, um, indeed, this is, um, this is the problem, right? This, this is, so he's, he's confront and his, so note his conclusion. It looks like his conclusion is that making them corrupt elves is a tempting solution to the problem because it solves, it appears to solve one half of the problem, but only by exacerbating the other half of the problem. So his analysis in the end here is that on balance, yeah, no. In that case, elves as a source are very unlikely. Very unlikely. Um, the, the whole free will thing, the whole inheritable evil thing, that's a bigger problem than the independent will thing, right? Um, he, he concludes... And are orcs immortal in the elvish sense, or trolls? It seems clearly implied in the Lord of the Rings that trolls existed in their own right, but were tinkered with by Melkor. Um, I'm not sure what he's referring to. I mean, that, of course, the primary thing that is stated about the origin of trolls in the Lord of the Rings is Treebeard's statement about how, you know, they were made in mockery events as orcs were of elves. Um which doesn't seem to me to imply that they existed in their own right. Um, Unless he's arguing that they actually literally were corrupted Ents. But that doesn't seem to be what Treebeard is saying. Um, And it's... And again, their um, affiliation, association, is with stone, not with wood. So... 
I'm not really sure there exactly. Again, it's, I can't think he's referring to that passage. Possibly he's referring to the Appendix F reference to trolls. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. So um, he does. He seems to imply a no to the Aurochs immortal. That we'll come back to that. Anyway, all right. So let's keep thinking about this. In any case, it is likely. Or is it likely or possible that even the least of the Maiar would become orcs? Yes, both outside Arda and in it, before the fall of Atumno. Melkor had corrupted many spirits, some great as Sauron, or less so as Balrogs. The least could have been primitive, and much more powerful and perilous, orcs. But by practicing when embodied procreation, they would, cross-reference Melian, become more and more earthbound, unable to return to spirit state, even demon form, until released by death, killing, and they would dwindle in force. Okay, so following that, this is an interesting potential solution, right? Okay, so what if orcs are not constructs manufactured by Melkor, nor are they corrupted elves, but originally they are the least of the Maiar, right? The, 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 they're the least of Sauron's spirit allies who manifest themselves, who first manifest themselves in orc shape, right? And then they breed with each other. That Maiar embodied can breed, we know, right? Melian did it. And what's more, notice what he's saying, um... It's not just that he's pointing to Melian as an example of a Maya who embodied herself and practiced pro- and practiced procreation, right? Um, uh, but she's an example of a Maya who, when embodied, practiced procreation and thus became more and more earthbound. Um, why, as long as Thingol lived, she was bound. Um, through her marriage, she was bound. Um, so this is a way, this is a different way to envision the first generation of orcs, right? So the very first generation of orcs are essentially weak Maiar who take orcish form and then they have children like with each other. Maybe with something else, maybe in the Ungoliant model, Jennifer, right? Where Ungoliant finds beasts, essentially, which she uh, mates with and then bears her brood, you know, Shelob and Shelob's siblings. Um, uh, yes, well, so David says the only examples of Maiar breeding need an incarnate partner. Well, so far as we know, um, I mean, we only have a couple examples of it, Melian. Ungoliant. Any others? Any other Maiar who took physical form and mated with an incarnate creature? Uh, um, yeah, not thinking of anything there. Um, um, eagles, potentially. Sure. Sure that the later eagles are the descendants of, like, Thorondor and mortal eagles. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I can accept that. Um, I kind of wonder about dragons. 
but let me not complicate it with that question. Um, anyway, so you're right, um, David, that that's the only example that we get, but that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, it's a small number of data points, right? I mean, do we know for a fact that two Maiar can't procreate in this way? Um, yeah, you're right. Shelob, of course, Margaret. I was kind of lumping Shelob in with Ungoliant to make Shelob in the first place, and then Shelob does the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, I, people talk about Bayorn. Yeah, um, I, right. Maybe, maybe. Um, no, I don't think so. He's a man. Uh, I don't think he's half bear. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, but Michael, exactly. I mean, I go back to the children of the Valar thing, right? He did abandon that concept. Might not be too late to bring that one out of uh, out of mothballs, though, you know, in a sense, in a different sense, right? Not not in the, the old sense, but um, you know, like the old sense in which Orome was was, you know, the son of Yavanna. But um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cecilia Melkor could theoretically have bred with something. Of course, everybody remembers that occurred to him at one point, right? He did have uh, he did have a notion at one point. Uh, procreate. There was a there was a time when procreation crossed his mind, um, uh, and that's of course when Luthien is dancing uh, in front of him, um, which is implied still in the published Silmarillion text and is a good deal more explicit uh, in the uh, Book of Lost Tales text, in which Luthien creepily flirts with him. Um, but, uh, and yeah, we do have him committing rape, uh, in the more recent versions, Melkor, that is, um, raping Aryan. Yeah, we do. Um, it's not exactly a procreation situation, but, um, uh, and Michael points out, of course, this also could be a kind of perversion of the, like, you know, the, the ability of the Maiar to procreate, uh, with incarnates could be something which is being, basically being kind of warped and twisted, uh, Anyway, that seems to be the notion here, and it's an inch. This is a re- to me. This is a really interesting and very profitable notion of Tolkien's. It's it's a very cunning way to avoid some of the problems. Anyway, right. Um, anyway, all right. Uh, well, let, let me keep going. I stopped early. Um, right, they'd be more and more earthbound, unable to return to spirit state until released by death killing, and they would dwindle in force. When released, they would, of course, like Sauron, be damned, i.e. reduced to impotence, infinitely recessive. So they would wander about like ghosts and shadows, just like Sauron haunting the wilderness, still hating, but uh, but unable more and more to make it effective physically, or would not a very dwindled, dead orc state be a, polter- be a poltergeist? So that even some modern hauntings and things could be explained by dwindled dead orc spirits. Um, so some of them have uh, receded so much, right, are so ineffective physically that they might just be, you know, a cold spot that you walk through, uh, right, or something like that, right? 
Um, okay, that's interesting. But again, he says, would Eru provide Fear for such creatures? For the eagles, etc., perhaps, but not for orcs. I have to admit to being a little puzzled by this for a while, but I think I finally figured out what he's saying. And it seems pretty simple once I did figure it out that um, I think that what he's saying is um, they're kids, right? Their kids, Fear, have to come from somewhere. If they're going to beget children, the children have to be able to get Wills and Fear from somewhere. And is Arrow going to hand those? Is Arrow going to hand those out to the little abominable orc babies of these damned spirits? You know who are embodying themselves in order to procreate an army of orcs. <clears throat> no, Arrow wouldn't do that. Um, but Josiah, I'm thinking exactly the same thing you are. Okay, but. He didn't seem to mind when it came to spiders. Um, what about the spiders of Mirkwood? The seemingly sentient spiders of Mirkwood, Josiah, just as you say. That would seem to me to be, uh, to not fit there. Well, perhaps Tolkien's response to us there, Josiah, would be, yeah, there are a bunch of things in The Hobbit that don't fit with the later philosophical ideas, right? Um, um, of course, even Sheila herself, though, it doesn't. it's not only the broods of spiders in Mirkwood, even Sheila herself would be a, an aberration. She, where did her fair come from? Right. Um, you know, when Melian procreated her offspring, um, received, a, uh, received a fair, right. From Iluvatar. Pretty good one too. Um, I, but that was his gift because she's born, she's born an elf. Right, one of his children. Um, yeah, so no. I, so Stephen, the idea, you know, Stephen asked, does Arrow have to provide them, or can he simply allow them to be? Well, no. Yes, he would, in the sense that he's he's the only, you know, he's the he's he's the only merchant in town. You know, I mean, like it's it's the only where there's nowhere else fair come from. Um, Melkor doesn't have Fear to distribute. Uh, it's only Arrow who can distribute Fear. It's only Arrow who can provide those. And so, um, yeah. Maybe he'd do it for the eagles, right? Thorondor decides he wants to have kids and breed a race of, you know, giant, helpful, you catastrophic eagles. Arrow gives him the thumbs up, right? Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll distribute Fear, right? And we'll get Gwai here and Langeval and, and Mineldir and all the rest, right? But, um, um, you know, Ungoliant wants kids and grandkids. Evil orc spirits want kids and grandkids. Eru's not going to be complying with that. Except apparently he did with spiders, so, you know. But anyway, that seems that's his problem here. He's going to keep thinking. In summary, I think it must be assumed that talking is not necessarily a sign of the possession of a rational soul, Orfea. Ah, so we're backtracking, right? It's like, okay, all right. New approach to the problem. What if the orcs don't actually have rational souls at all? What if that's an illusion, right? Because the problem comes in with assuming they have a rational soul. 
if they don't, if they don't have any free will and they don't have any choice and they don't have any independent thought, then they don't have to be the stepchildren of Iluvatar. They, they could be, they, yeah. So what if things that can talk on their own are not in fact rational souls? The orcs were beasts of humanized shape, right? So again, this is the theory. This is, you know, him running with his theory. The orcs were beasts of humanized shape to mock men and elves, deliberately perverted or converted into a more close resemblance to men. Okay, so they're, that's what, how they're made in mockery of elves, right? They're, just as the dragons appear to be distorted beasts, right? Um, so the orcs are going to be talking beasts, essentially. Their talking, their quote-unquote talking, was really reeling off records set in them by Melkor. So, Melkor, they just have, they're, they're, they're like, you know, one of those dolls that you pull the string, right? And it has, a, like, a few different things that it says. I mean, that's like, of course... Ones from the '80s. Ones nowadays, you push the little, you know, you push the little button, and it, uh, it, it says a thing, right? So, um, so you squeeze the little, the little sound thing in the orcs, right? And it says one of fifteen messages that's pre-programmed into it, right? Um, uh, <laughs> in fact, you know what it reminds me of? Sorry. Apologies to non-Lotro players. It reminds me of the things that the orcs and goblins do, in fact, say in uh, in the video game. Right. You know, there's like a set of a discrete set of lines which they will occasionally come out with, uh, sometimes quite unexpectedly, like Nazgul. And I'm like, why is he talking about Nazgul in the middle of nowhere? Um, uh, it's exactly like the, exactly all the orcs are NPCs, David Orbach. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, so, um, uh, yeah. Now, Michael Dennis says, you know, I wonder if primitive AI is a better analogy than records. Yeah. I mean, if, uh, uh, if Tolkien knew anything about AI, he would have a better model for this, right? Um, their talking was reeling off records set in them by Melkor. So push the button and they say things like, you know, uh, kill and, um, uh, you know, those aren't our orders, <laughs> you know, various other things that orcs say. Even the rebellious critical words, he knew about them. Melkor taught them speech, and as they bred, they inherited this. And they had just as much independence as have, say, dogs or horses of their human masters. This talking was largely echoic, like parrots. In The Lord of the Rings, Sauron is said to have devised a language for them. The same sort of thing may be said of Huon and the eagles. They were taught language by the Valar and raised to a higher level, but they still had no Fear. And that's where he loses me. No, no, I'm sorry. The Talking Beast solution, like, okay, I can almost get behind the Talking Beast solution, especially, actually, Michael, if we kind of take it in an AI direction, right? And we think about it in that way. Um, I can almost, I can almost get behind this idea. But if the corollary to this notion is that Huan has no soul, I'm not down with it. I'm sorry. 
Nope, I draw the line there. Uh, that's um, um, that's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. <laughs> but uh, not in Huan's case. Um, but uh, anyway. But okay, so but this is another another interesting solution. So we have two potential ways now that he's putting forward to break the to break the loop, right? To to break the 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 catch twenty two that he's in about independent wills and rational souls. The weakness of this one, so the weakness of the former one was they still have to procreate, and where do the fear come from? Um, the weakness of this one, because then this leads us to, hey, what if they have no fair at all? It's just, a new, you know, it's just that you, that you, you think they have one, but they really don't. Um, the problem here is that it's hard to reconcile this to Shagrat and Korbag, right? Um, how can they be plotting against um, Sauron or wishing to defy him or whatever um, if all they're doing is just parroting back things that are kind of pre-programmed into them. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Or Ugluk and Grishnak. Yes, I agree, Chris. I mean, almost every, again, and, it's, and he's very aware of that, right? He keeps coming back to that. He knows that the orc dialogue in Lord of the Rings is a problem, right? Um, a definitely a big problem. Um, Devorah points out that her cats defy her all the time. So this works for her as a potential model, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. There we go. Um, all right. But Finrod probably went too far in his assertion that Melkor could not wholly corrupt any work of Eru, or that Eru would necessarily interfere to abrogate the corruption, or to end the being of his own creatures because they had been corrupted and fallen into evil. It remains, therefore, terribly possible that there was an elvish strain in the orcs. These may then even have been mated with beasts, sterile, and later men. Their lifespan would be diminished, and dying they would go to Mandos and be held in prison till the end. In the end, he comes back, or maybe I'll just revert to the elf idea in the end. Um, I... Notice how he talks himself. So he's having put forward these other two ideas, he kind of pitches both of them, right? And it's like, well, okay, actually, all we have to do is back down just a little bit, not from the Melkor can't create proposition, but always just back down just a little bit from the Melkor could not wholly corrupt any work of Eru. Maybe Melkor could make the evil heritable. If he could, then that would be okay. That would solve some of the problems. Okay, so maybe they were elves then. If that's the case, maybe they were elves. Um, and the elves, the corrupted elves, could have been mated with beasts. By the way, can somebody explain to me? I don't know what he means by sterile in parentheses. Who's sterile? The children of... Elves and beasts would themselves be sterile, kind of like a mule is sterile, right? You can breed a horse and a donkey and get a mule, but you can't breed the mules together because the the product of that mating is sterile. That's the only thing I can think of. And so I, that he would be suggesting that the, the child of 
elves and the beasts would be sterile. If he thinks that solves any problems, I have news for him. It only means that we now have to set up a permanent factory of corrupted elves constantly mating with beasts and producing sterile orc offspring in order to 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 build up the armies of Melkor. Um, and if he thinks that's a less horrifying solution, I have news for him. That is not. Um, that 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 is not. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Spanky Forty says the, the the fact that hybrids are usually sterile, right? Exactly. I I I have to think that's what he means. But it's so I can't even like that's not, that's such a horrible solution. I'm not even going there. Um, their lifespan would be diminished, and in dying they would go to Mandos and be held in prison until the end. Uh, okay, sure. Um, so there, of course, he's dealing with what would happen to the, what happens to the souls of orcs. Answer: They would go to Mandos and be held in prison until the end. Um, um, yeah, and I agree with um, several of you who are saying, "Okay, Tolkien, you're overthinking this now. <laughs> you're really, really overthinking this." Um, Stephen, you were asking before, um, he said, you know, if he just changed the conception so that it's not only Eru that hands out Fea, um, you know, if there's some other kind of system by which the Fea are gained, would that help? Yes, that would help. Um, but that's a big deal. That's a very significant deal. I mean, there are several, you know, you can identify two or three different, like, theological premises, essentially, that Tolkien seems unwilling to compromise on, right? That's one of them. That's one of them that does create the problem. But, um, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. Okay. That was the end of that essay. Now he's going he's gonna to try again. This suggests, and I don't even, it's not even clear at all to me what he's referring to by the this. It's just like a note in the side. But some of the stuff that he wrote before suggests, though it is not explicit, that the orcs were of elvish origin. Their origin is more clearly dealt with elsewhere. If the other one was the understatement of the day, uh, this one is the uh, um, wildly over-optimistic assessment of the day. No, their origin is not more clearly dealt with elsewhere, Professor. I'm sorry. They're just not. Uh, but anyway, one point only is certain. Melkor could not create living creatures of independent wills. This, of course, is the original problem. It is That is the, is the theological shift which, which caused the whole orc problem. If only orcs could still be allowed to be constructs of evil, we've got no problems. Um, but he doubles down on this, right? Until it is now, in his own words, the only point that is certain. The one, one point only is certain, and that's the one. So, okay. All right, fine. We're still operating with that as a baseline. He and all the spirits of the first created, according to their measure, that first created meaning the Ainur, um, could assume bodily shapes. And he and they 
could dom- that is M- Melkor is the he of course here and he and they that is all the rest of the Ainur could dominate the minds of other creatures including men and elves by force fear or deceits or sheer magnificence totally possible for him to overwhelm and dominate the minds of uh, incarnate creatures no problems there the elves from their earliest times invented and used a word or words with a base orok to denote anything that caused fear and or horror. It would originally have been applied to phantoms, spirits assuming visible forms, as well as to any independently existing creatures. Its application in all elvish tongues, specifically to the creatures called orcs, so I shall spell it in the Silmarillion, was later, that is, with a K, orc with a K, O-R-K-S. He's decided he's going to definitely change the spelling of orc uh, and spell it with a K uh, from now on. Um, okay. Uh, okay, great. So let's keep going. Since Melkor could not create an independent species, but had immense powers of corruption and distortion of those that came into his power, it is probable that these orcs had a mixed origin. Most of them plainly and biologically were corruptions of elves and probably later also of men. But always among them, as special servants and spies of Melkor and as leaders, there must have been numerous corrupted minor spirits who assumed similar bodily shapes. These would exhibit terrifying and demonic characters. Uh, These would exhibit terrifying and demonic characters. I bet they would. The elves would have classed the creatures called trolls in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings as orcs in character and origin. But they were larger and slower it would seem evident that they were corruptions of primitive human types. Okay, so the trolls are corruptions of humans, and the orcs of elves, maybe, something like that. Anyway, okay, so he's trying to reconcile himself to the corruption thing, right? Okay, so Melkor, totally capable of corrupting, so he does seem to be playing out the what if he could, what if Melkor does have the power to make corruption heritable? That would solve part of the problem, right? So, so this is what the corrupted elf slash human version looks like, and there would also be some among them the the uh, the embodied Maiar orc demons can also be involved and could meet with them, right? Totally, like Melian, right? I mean, there would be differences. But anyway, um, you know, like to, to like, you know, make even more specially demonic orcs, I guess. Um, okay. Has he solved it? So are they immortal then? Corrupted elves? Coterminous with Arda? Right? Like, Luvatar designed them to be, and Melkor doesn't have the power to change that. Um, like Finrod says very clearly. Uh, so what happens to their souls when they die? So do they have free will? So can they be saved? Can they repent? We have no answers to those questions, but those questions seem to me still to be asked, right? Um the origins of the orcs is a matter of debate. Hey, we have another candidate for understatement of the day. Some have called them the Melkor, the Melkorohini, the children of Melkor. But the wiser say, nay, the slaves of Melkor, but not his children, for Melkor had no children. 
Nonetheless, it was by the malice of Melkor that the orcs arose, and plainly they were meant by him to be a mockery of the children of Eru, being bred to be wholly subservient to his will and filled with unappeasable hatred of elves and men. Okay, so there, he has no children. So again, they're not constructs. Um, we're dodging the question still so far here, right? They're meant to be a mockery. They're bred to be subservient to his will. Okay, so is he just saying that Melkor's will is just overriding their wills? That's why we don't have the free will question. Okay. Now, the orcs of the later wars, after the escape of Melkor Morgoth and his return to Middle-earth, were not spirits nor phantoms, but living creatures, capable of speech and some crafts and organization, or at least capable of learning these things from higher creatures and from their master. They bred and multiplied rapidly whenever left undisturbed. So far as can be gleaned from the legends that have come down to us from the earliest days, it would seem that the Quendi had never yet encountered any orcs of this kind before the coming of Orome to Quivienen. Okay, so no record of orcs existing contemporaneously with Quivienne. Like that, so the, the orcs weren't there already. Okay, okay. But they're living creatures. They learn, they speak, they build, and they breed. So, okay, okay. This view of the origin of orcs thus meets with difficulties of chronology. Oh dear. And remember, when he's talking about chronology, he's talking about the new chronology, right? The chronology, the round earth chronology, which says, among other things, there's an, there's an embarrassingly short amount of time from the rising of the sun until the Edain show up to have the whole scope of human history and the fall of man happen during that time. So we need to protract that, right? It's one of the things that he does. <clears throat> this view of the origin of orcs thus meets with difficulties of chronology. <clears throat> but though men may take comfort in this, the theory remains nonetheless the most probable. Um, uh, yeah, so, the, sorry, the theory he's talking about here is that orcs are corrupted men. Um, how could they be corrupted men when men didn't arise until later and orcs were already beating up the elves, uh, you know, much earlier than that? Um, and so he's like, maybe men would like the idea, would, would take refuge in that thought, right? That um, it's not... Um, it, they, they can't be men, obviously, for purposes of chronology. But he's like, well, actually, it accords with all that is known of Melkor and of the nature and behavior of orcs and of men. Melkor was impotent to produce any living thing, but skilled in the corruption of things that did not proceed from himself if he could dominate them. But if he had indeed attempted to make creatures of his own in imitation or mockery of the incarnates, he would, like Aule, only have succeeded in producing puppets. His creatures would have acted only while the attention of his will was upon them, and they would have shown no reluctance to execute any command of his, even if it were to destroy themselves. But orcs were not of this kind. They were certainly dominated by their master, but his dominion was by fear, and they were aware of this fear and hated him. They were indeed so corrupted that they were pitiless, and there was no cruelty or wickedness that they did not commit. But this was the corruption of independent wills, and they took pleasure in their deeds. They were capable of acting on their own, doing evil deeds unbidden for their own sport. Or if Morgoth and his agents were far away, they might neglect his commands. They sometimes fought, 
changed to, they hated one another and often fought among themselves to the detriment of Morgoth's plans. So, again, independent will. We see him running up against the same theological points, right? The same philosophical problems. But this time he's going to come to a slightly different conclusion. This last point was not well understood in the elder days, for Morgoth had many servants, the oldest and most potent of whom were immortal, belonging indeed in their beginning to the mire. And these evil spirits, like their master, could take on visible forms. Those whose business it was to direct the orcs often took orcish shapes, though they were greater and more terrible. Thus it was that the histories speak of the great orcs or orc captains who were not slain and who reappeared in battle through years far longer than the span of the lives of men. So there, are some, there seem to be some immortal orc captains out there. And he wrote a footnote to Greater and More Terrible. Bulldog, for instance, is a name that occurs many times in the tales of the war. But it is possible that Bulldog was not a personal name, and either a title or else the name of a kind of creature. The orc formed Maiar, only less formidable than the Balrogs. So, Bulldog, he has a name for this. Now, Christopher gets a little bit technical on us here. Christopher's comment here is like, actually, there's only one reference to Bulldog in all of the tales of the war, right? Um, uh, you may remember it's in the Lay of, La- of uh, Lathian. We hear that Bulldog has recently led an invasion, um, an attempted invasion into Doriath and been killed. Um, so, Bulldog seems to be like a, a great captain among the orcs uh, in the Lay of Lathian. That's the only reference to Bulldog uh, in the earlier uh, myths. And so Christopher's like, I don't know what he's talking about when he says it's a name that occurs many times in the tales of the Valar. I think I have a suggestion as to what Tolkien means when he says that. Not that he already had told many stories about Bulldog, but that he is planning to tell many stories about Bulldog. He is meaning for this statement to be true when he has revised the Silmarillion. This idea of the great orcs, this idea of those demonic spirits who are taking on orc forms and becoming leaders and progenitors of the orcs, we see this is an idea that he's latched onto, and he keeps coming back to it. He does not seem to accept it because of the Fear problem as a solution to the orc problem, but it's something that he's holding on to. So I think this is not a, a, a memory of all those times he did talk about Bulldog, but a notification that he's planning to talk about Bulldog. Um... Okay. Finally, there is a cogent... Okay, brace yourselves, people. Finally, there is a cogent point, though horrible to relate. Consider yourselves warned. It became clear in time that undoubted men could, under the domination of Morgoth or his agents in a few generations, be reduced almost to the orc level of mind and habits. And then they would or could be made to mate with orcs, producing new breeds, often larger and more cunning. There is no doubt that long afterwards in the Third Age, Saruman rediscovered this, or learned of it in his lore, and in his lust for mastery committed this his wickedest deed, the interbreeding of orcs and men, producing both men-orcs, large and cunning, and orc-men, treacherous and vile. Um... uh, yeah, interesting. Stephen suggests that his statement, orcs are, are dealt more clearly with elsewhere, uh, was not 
a deluded statement about what he'd already said, but a but a, but a, an, a statement founded in Estelle about what he was going to say. Maybe I like that reading. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Devorah says watching Tolkien trying to figure this out is like watching someone trying to do one of those puzzles where you try to take the ring off the rope or whatever. You know, yeah, it, it is a little bit like that. Um, uh, okay, right. So, orcs. This unfortunately doesn't solve the orc problem uh, because we only end up in like an infinite reversion. If. Um, if men can be corrupted almost to orc level and gotten to the point where they mate with orcs and produce new breeds of orcs, it explains the variety among orcs, but it still doesn't explain where orcs come from in the first place, except to suggest that um, the orcs, you know, the, the orcs with whom these corrupted men are breeding are just men who have been corrupted several generations earlier on. In short, and before I read this passage, where he's coming to here in the end is that he still holds that the corruption theory is the best one with the fewest problems. And if you make them human instead of elvish, then there are even there are fewer problems. They can be mortal like humans. Right. We don't even have to worry about their souls exactly. Because their souls leave the world like men and then Iluvatar sorts them out. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't change, though, the wait. So why are we OK with genocide again? Problem. Um, you know, the is it possible for orcs to repent? problem. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, going into thinking about Sauron and the orcs, this servitude to a central will that reduced orcs to an almost ant-like life was seen even more plainly in the second and third ages under the tyranny of Sauron, Morgoth's chief lieutenant. Sauron indeed achieved even greater control over his orcs than Morgoth had done. He was, of course, operating on a smaller scale, and he had no enemies so great and so fell as were the Noldor in, the mighty, in their might in the Elder Days. But he had also inherited from those days difficulties, such as the diversity of the orcs in breed and language, and the feuds among them. While in many places in Middle-earth, after the fall of Thangorodrim and during the concealment of Sauron, the orcs, recovering from their helplessness, had set up petty realms of their own and had become accustomed to independence. Could their society improve over time? I wonder. Anyway, nonetheless, Sauron and time managed to unite them all in unreasoning hatred of the elves and men who associated with them. The elves and of men who associated with them, sorry. While the orcs of his own trained armies were so completely under his will that they would sacrifice themselves without hesitation at his command. And he proved even more skillful than his master also in the corruption of men who were beyond the reach of the wise, and in reducing them to a vassalage in which they would march with the orcs and vie with them 
in cruelty and destruction. So Sauron was really good at dominating orcs, and he was really good at corrupting men as well. So he could reduce men to a state of vassalage in which they would be cool with the orcs and even compete with them in cruelty. Um, yeah, okay. So, right. So orcs are the independence... So the independent mind of the orcs, that is their freedom of will, is merely being overridden by Sauron, by the force of his will. Imperfectly, as we can see from Shagrat and Gorbag, right? Um, but still sufficiently to prevent any chance that they would repent. Oh, wait, but why is it still okay to slaughter the orcs after Sauron is gone and his will is removed from them? Like we do. Um, um, the orcs, it is true, sometimes appear to have been reduced to a condition very similar, though there remains actually a profound difference. Those orcs who dwelt long under the immediate attention of his will, as garrisons of his strongholds or elements of armies trained for special purposes in his war designs, would act like herds, obeying instantly, as if with one will, his commands, even if ordered to sacrifice their lives in his service. And as was seen when Morgoth was at last overthrown and cast out, those orcs had all had become so absorbed uh, scattered, scattered, that had become so absorbed, scattered helplessly, without purpose either to flee or to fight, and soon died or slew themselves. Here, of course, he's um, uh, thinking of the description of what happens to the armies at the Black Gate when Sauron dies. But they didn't all die on that day by their own hands. Anyway, other originally independent creatures and men among them, but neither elves nor dwarves, could also be reduced to a like condition. So again, notice how he is working through this. What he's landed on is he has increased, he's trying to solve the problem by increasing um, Melkor's ability to corrupt, and then Sauron after him, to corrupt their spirits. No, he can totally corrupt them, and he can even make that corruption heritable. And that seems to solve many of the problems that were facing him before in the issue of uh, the independent wills of the orcs. But puppets with no independent life or will would simply cease to move or do anything at all when the will of their maker was brought to nothing. So they wouldn't like kill them. So puppets don't commit suicide when you drop them. They just drop, right? Um, so it's clear that they're not just puppets. In any case, the number of orcs that were thus absorbed was always only a small part of their, of their total. To hold them in absolute servitude required a great expense of will. Morgoth, though in origin possessed of vast power, was finite. And it was this expenditure upon the orcs, and still more upon the other far more formidable creatures in his service, such as, you know, dragons, that in the event so dissipated his powers of mind that Morgoth's overthrow became possible. Thus, the greater part of the orcs, though under his orders and the dark shadow of their fear of him, were only intermittently objects of his immediate thought and concern, and while that was removed, they relapsed into independence and became conscious of their hatred of him and his tyranny. They, then they might neglect his orders, or engage in... And this is where that draft cuts off in mid-sentence. 
I'm assuming what they're going to be engaging in is acts of rebellion, like we're, like the orcs fighting and killing each other in the uh, in the Tower of Kirathungal, I think is the kind of thing that he's thinking about there. Okay. All right. So I get the way that he's fleshing out the dominion of, of the orc wills by Sauron especially, it like mostly works for me. Mostly works for me. I think if we can go this direction, if we can imagine the heritability of the of the corruption uh, and the and the domination by you know first the ruining by Melkor and then the domination by Sauron, we can make it work. But only if we ignore the other theological problems. What about repentance? What about these are creatures with souls, right? Yes, they've been corrupted, but that's not their fault. Right? Why is slaughtering them okay when slaughtering men is not okay? It's not okay to slaughter Haradrim, but it's okay to slaughter orcs. Why exactly? Why? <clears throat> and that question, he's ducking. He's just ducking that question. Um, <clears throat> this is the last segment. We're almost done. Uh, this is the last segment. Um, that's the end of the orc stuff. Um, yeah, I think it is the end of the orc stuff. Um, so, yeah, so in conclusion, that's this seems to be where he's ended up. This is the closest he's come to solving the problem. Humans are better than elves as corrupted objects. Once you monkey with the chronology of the first age in order to make that work out enough that to make, you know, push back the awakening of the humans, which since we don't have a first rising of the sun occasion anymore. Who cares? Let's make them earlier, right? So um, so he decides to do that. So, okay, all right, fine. Um, but again, it's still... I think that he is... That's why I called this a tactical retreat on Tolkien's part as much as it is an advance. Because earlier on in the discussion, he was very clear about the problems that confronted both sides. And he sort of solved one problem, or he kind of talked himself out of one of the problems. But the other problems, which he himself articulated, what about orcs being saved? Um, maybe maybe they could be convinced and uncorrupted. Maybe they could be healed. He raised that explicitly earlier on, but in the end, in these ending things, he just is not thinking about that. And so he's here just being way less thorough in his analysis than he was earlier on. All right. <clears throat> the last thing in Myths Transformed, the last thing in the book, is the discussion about why exactly it's a bad idea for humans to go to the Blessed Realm. All right. <clears throat> he starts off by talking about the passage of time. One problem is that elves and Amon... Elves in the Valar are in sync as far as their perception of the passage of time is concerned. Humans grow faster and just live on an accelerated time scale. It's not only that they are mortal, they're on a totally different time frame. And everything in Amon works differently. So the flowers grow slowly. You know, like what would look to a human like years and years um, is how long it takes for the flowers to bloom in Amon, right? Um, I have to admit, I don't get this at all. I just, I don't. I can't understand it. Um, 
It is possible that my own intellect is merely being defeated here. Um, I, I'm very willing to believe the problem might be my problem, but I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand how that's possible. Um, how can the elves be living in a kind of that kind of slow motion, right? Where a flower might take 50 years of the sun to grow up and to bloom. How can the elves interact with humans at all throughout the history of Beleriand, right? Um, wouldn't they be, um, wouldn't they be all like slow motion? I mean, it just, it's because if they're not, if they're not actually moving in slow motion, right? Um, if they're not actually moving in slow motion, then um, uh, how is it, in what sense are they perceiving the time passing differently, right? Um, if you have a, an elf and a human sitting there on a log together, right, watching the sun rise and set, watching the wind blow, they're seeing the same thing. Things are moving, like, at the same speed. Maybe in some perspective, it feels like just a few minutes to the elf and it doesn't to the human. But it's not like they are unaware of the passing of time. It's not like time is actually passing at a different rate. Um, as I said, I just, I, um, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Um, uh, and... I couldn't tell if I was being thick or if um, Tolkien, Tolkien's playing with time here is uh, a little, well, insufficiently wibbly-wobbly, I guess. Sorry, Doctor Who reference. Um, but the... Um, uh, the... Yeah. I, anyway, so I just, I don't, I don't, I would be happy to have somebody explain it to me, but it really just, it seems like a weakness. Um, I, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, yeah. I, I, the, the Doctor Who series of episodes that had that, remember the spaceship Who's where time passes differently at different levels, like as you travel up and down in the elevator. That's a much more interesting and complex approach to what different variations in time would look like. But the elves aren't that they don't fit that. That doesn't work. Um, uh, anyway, nor is it like relativity. No, because it would be perceived differently. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I just, yeah, I, I hesitantly, I would say it doesn't work. Um, I think that maybe Tolkien could have benefited by talking with some of his physics colleagues a little bit more about that, perhaps, 
or watching more Doctor Who, <laughs> which he had the opportunity to watch a little bit of Doctor Who, but unfortunately, none of the good time travel stuff. Um, the time travel that happens in the first 10 years of Doctor Who would not have helped him very much. Um, but um, yeah, anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay, anyhow. Uh, Now, see, but Spanky, I don't, I don't, I don't think that it, it doesn't explain it. Um, I, I'm totally willing to get that time seems like that there's a different relation to it. Like uh, Spanky, as as you say, the difference to like what a year felt like when we were six compared to what a year feels like, you know, when you're in your forties. Like it's, it's, it feels very different, right? Time isn't passing differently, but it seems different to us. That I can understand, but that's not what Tolkien says. He says that time actually passes differently in Amon. That like every and everything is set to a different clock. That animals and plants grow and mature at a different rate, at the elvish rate in Amon. So that men are just like they would grow at the same rate that flowers grow uh, in Amon. And it's and, and I'm just like, no, but no, it, it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. I just um, but anyway, okay. Um, but let's go on. So there's a reason I didn't give out those passages and try to bank my head against them because I was just like waving a little white flag. So let's move on. That's all the, the stuff that he's referring to when he says, if it is thus in Amon, if it is that way with the difference in, in time, uh, and humans just being, uh, like, you know, mayflies in, in Amon. If it is thus in Amon, or was ere the change of the world, and therein the Eldar had health and lasting joy, what shall we say of men? No man has ever set foot in Amon, or at least none has ever returned thence, for the Valar forbade it. Why so? To the Numenorians, they said that they did so because Eru had forbidden them to admit men to the blessed realm. And they declared also that men would not there be blessed, as they imagined, but accursed and would wither even as a moth in a flame too bright. Beyond these words, we can but go and guess, so all that comes is speculation. Yet, we may consider the matter so. The Valar were not only by Eru forbidden the attempt, they could not alter the nature or doom of Eru of any of the children, in which was included the speed of their growth relative to the whole life of Arda, and the length of their, time sp of their lifespan. Even the Eldar, in that respect, remained unchanged. So they can't change the nature of men. That's why. So that, that's why can't why why can't men come? Because they can't change the nature of men. Why does that matter? Well, let's go on. Let us suppose then that the Valar had also admitted to Amon some of the Atani, and so that we may consider a whole life of a man in such a state, that mortal children were there born, as were children of the Eldar. Then, even though in Amon, a mortal child would still grow to maturity in some twenty years of the sun, and the natural span of its, of its life, the period of the cohesion of Hroa and Fea, would be no more than, say, a hundred years. Not much more, even though his body would suffer no sickness or disorder in Amon, where no such evils existed. Unless men brought these evils with them. As why should they not? Even the Eldar brought to the Blessed Realm some taint of the shadow upon Arda in which they came into being. 
But let's stop thinking about the possibility that men would like introduce, you know, cancer and lung disease and heart disease to Amon. Okay, but forgetting that for the, for 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 the, for the moment. Now, go back to our 100-year-old dude who grew up in Amon from birth, right? Um, and but yet they're still like scheduled to die because they're human, right? And the uh, Valar can't take away the 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 doom. Right. Okay. But so what would happen then? One of two things would happen then. Here's option one. In Amon, such a creature would be a fleeting thing, the most swift passing of all beasts, for his whole life would last little more than one half year from the Elvish perspective. And while all other living creatures would seem to him hardly to change, but to remain steadfast in life and joy with hope of endless years undimmed, he would p- rise and pass, even as upon earth the grass may rise in spring and wither ere the winter. So he would age faster than, like, you know, the mice and the chipmunks or whatever, right? He would be like a beetle, essentially, or like a mosquito or something like that, as far as his life cycle is concerned. Okay. Um, then he would become filled with envy deeming himself a victim of injustice, being denied the graces given to all other things, like even the chipmunks get a better deal in Amon than I do. He would not value what he had, but feeling that he was among the least and most despised of all creatures, right? I see where I am on, on Eru's totem pole, right? Uh, I mean, I, 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 I see where I rate. He would not escape the fear and sorrow of his swift mortality that is his lot upon earth in Ardamard but would be burdened by it unbearably to the loss of all delight. <laughs> Jennifer says, they would all be Andreth. Ouch. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, yep. Okay, so um, that's one option. So one option is bitterness, right? If everything went well, still, the impression that he would get was not that he was blessed, but that he was cursed. Right, that he's he's he would be the more horribly conscious of his um, doom. Right. What's the other option? The other option is so much worse. The other option is the Valinorian zombie apocalypse. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. But let us suppose that the blessing of Amon was also accorded to men. So, so okay, right? Because. The rebuttal to the bitterness option, right, is, yeah, okay, that's only because they're being, they are being shafted, right? They're being kept out of the, if the blessing of Amon, like, that is, like, being able to, uh, you know, for their spirits to be able to endure and stuff and hang out there, like, come on, they should be able to do that, too. What, what then? What if, what, what if it were? Would a great good be done to them? their bodies would still swiftly come to full growth. In the seventh part of a year, that is a Valinorian year, a man could be born and become full grown, as swiftly as in Amon a bird would hatch and fly from the nest. But then it would not wither or age, but would endure in vigor and in the delight of bodily living. But what of that man's fea? So, okay, so even if the hroa of men could be kind of incorporated into the Valinorian world, could be blessed like the rest of the blessed realm, right? What if his life could be extended, right? 
even if his life is extended, it wouldn't change the pace of his growth, right? So he'd still be growing up faster than the baby birds. But okay, fine. He's grown up faster than the baby birds. But it's fine. His uh, his body's not going to wither or age, but it's going to endure in vigor and in the delight of bodily living. Sounds awesome. Okay, we're, we're good so far. Sounds blessed. But what of the man's fea? Its nature and doom could not be changed, neither by the health of Amon, nor by the will of Manway himself. So just because your body was blessed with the blessedness of, of Amon doesn't mean that your spirit can be changed. You're still under, you still are the way that Eru designed your Fea, right? So what would happen then? Yet it is, as the Eldar held, hold its nature and doom, that is the Fea, the human Fea, its nature and doom under the will of Eru, that it should not endure Arda for long but should depart and go elsewhither, returning, maybe, direct to Eru, for another fate or purpose that is beyond the knowledge or guess of the Eldar. So, you know, Eru's still going to enforce the doom. You know, he's this is how human souls are designed. They're designed to leave the world and come, maybe to him, maybe, who knows, but maybe even to him, right? Um, that's what they're designed for, and they'll still do it. You can keep the body in perfect state, Right? So here's the body, still happy, healthy, and, 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 and trucking along just fine. But the spirit's ready to go. The spirit's feeling the call. So very soon, then, the fea and the hroa of a man and a man would not be united and at peace, but would be opposed to the great pain of both. The hroa, being in full vigor and joy of life, would cling to the fea, lest its departure should bring death. And against death it would revolt, as would a great beast in full life either flee from the hunter or turn savagely upon him. Okay, so the body's going to want to stay alive, right? It's not going to let the spirit go. Um, when did Aragorn decide it was time to go? When his body starts to fail, right? When he's old. Uh, not when he's all unmanned, right? Um, you know, he doesn't fall into final decrepitude, but it is... As he's aging, as his body is aging, right? His Hroa gives the signal to his Fea. And his Fea is like, yep, it's time. And so he, his Fea willingly and cheerfully departs from Middle-earth. Aragorn's does, right? But remember, the body was down with that. The body was done, right? The body, you know, the, 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 you know, the little, you know, poultry timer was popped on his Hroa. Right. And that's how he knew it was time to go. But if the poultry timer doesn't pop, right, if if the bodies just go on and on, cheerful and happy and healthy, they're going to hold on to the fea. Now the fea is going to have to fight with the Hroa to leave. It's going to be the opposite of the Aragorn situation. But the fea would be, as it were, in prison, becoming ever more weary of all the delights of the Hroa. The Hroa is still happy. Hroa is still enjoying itself, happy, healthy, experiencing pleasure, and the Fea hating it more and more. Becoming ever more weary of all the delights of the Hroa until they were loathsome to it. Longing ever more and more to be gone, until even those matters for its thought that it received through the Hroa and its senses became meaningless. The man would not be blessed, but accursed, and he would curse the Valar and Amon and all the things of Arda. And he would not willingly leave Amon, 
for that would mean rapid death, and he would have to be thrust forth with violence. Now that's... This is, this, is, this, this is not ending well. But, oh wait, it gets worse. But if he remained in Amman, what should he come to? Er Arda were at last fulfilled, and he found release. Either his Thea would be wholly dominated by the Roa, right? So the Thea is going to decline until it's a prisoner, and then until it's mad, and then he'd go through, uh, through sorrow and despair and madness into what? Like his Thea now shrinks and becomes um, completely dominated by the Roa, and he would become more like a beast, the one tormented within. Or else, if his Thea were strong, it would leave the Roa. We have the, a war between the two of them, and his fair would just be like, fine, I'm out of here. <laughs> Bada, you can stick around if you like, right? I am gone. Then one of two things would happen. <laughs> okay, all right, now, do tell. What happens when the, when the soul of a human, of a perfectly and, and, and like miraculously healthy human uh, 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 secedes from the body? What happens then, <laughs> pray tell? Uh, okay, one of two things. Either this would be accomplished only in hate, by violence, and the Hroa in full life would be rent and die in sudden agony. So either the spirit bursts through and kills the body in the process of doing this, like, like the perfectly healthy Hroa desperately clinging to life as the Fea leaves it, like explodes messily, uh, and painfully, right? So you just have somebody finally pop as their spirit bursts out of them and finally goes off to where human spirits are supposed to go to. Or, and that's the more pleasant of the two possibilities, so you've either got the spontaneous popping uh, of the perfectly healthy Roa, or the body, the Roa, would live on. A witless body. Not even a beast, but a monster. A very work of Melkor in the midst of Amon, which the Valar themselves would fain destroy. Zombies. Zombies. It goes, and so you have a walking, functioning body with no Fea in it at all. A kind of abomination that Melkor himself did not ever even succeed in getting. And now we suddenly have the zombie apocalypse in Valinor and the, and the Valar themselves and the Eldar of Amon having to hunt down the zombified remains of the still walking and presumably enjoying themselves Roa uh, of humans. So either way, uh, it's, it's not so good. Um, it's not so good. Um, yes, Bruce they, Bruce, they would be like a Gebeth. Yeah, like one of uh, Ursula Le Guin's Gebeths. Um, yeah, yeah, very like that. Very like that. Um, anyway, okay, so... Um, <laughs> so there we have it. With these pleasant images <laughs> of, of uh, uh, healthy humans in Amon <laughs> spontaneously exploding while their spirits leave them, or uh, shambling about as zombies uh, which have to be hunted down uh, by Orame and, and Tolkis and the rest of the Valar, with those pleasant images, I will leave you, and that concludes our discussion of Morgoth's Ring. And we did all the rest of that in two hours and five minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, okay. 
Awesome. Um, so uh, that was uh, that was that was a lot of fun. Thank you guys so much. Uh, you guys have been awesome. I have learned so much with you and and from you uh, throughout our discussions here. Um, Morgoth's Ring is the volume, one of the volumes of the history of Middle Earth that I've always loved most, um, and I've often come back and, and read, especially the Athrobeth, of course, um, but also some of these other bits I've come back and read many times. Um, but this is the first time I've ever read the whole book cover to cover. I just, I just, I never did that with the history of Middle Earth before. It's always, they've always been a kind of reference book. Um, so the whole picture, getting the whole picture has been so illuminating to me. Uh, and I am just delighted, um, uh, to have walked this journey with you guys. Um, it has been, uh, delightful and illuminating, and long, I know, uh, but I think worth every minute of our uh, some 56 hours of discussion uh, we've had on Morgoth's Ring here. And I look forward, we're going to be, so Dante starting next week, Alan Mandelbaum translation, and uh, I will see you for Canto 1 uh, as we join Dante halfway through his life's way next week. Uh, so thank you very much, everybody, and I will see you guys soon. If you don't want to do Inferno, uh, come back for the War of the Ring in March. Uh, look for me in March, especially at unlikely times, uh, and uh, we'll catch up again for the War of the Ring. Uh, the War of the Jewels, sorry. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, oh, yes, Michael, there is a new sign-up. Um, it's not going to be on this same thing, so this is the end of this uh, uh, this session, uh, this go-to-webinar session. Go to um, Mythgard.org, and it's on, the, it's on the Mythgard page, the new registration. So... Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Good night, and I will see you guys again soon. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.